0: We all have a creative part of our brain, whether we use it or not. For generating new ideas, problem solving, and just viewing ourselves in this world. I am Ricky McEachern, an artist living in Chicago, and I am eager to know and share with you all how people of a creative leaning have brought this way of thinking to the forefront and how it has shifted outcomes. Tom Roach is someone I met many years ago in Provincetown, Massachusetts. He is a professor of philosophy and cultural studies at Bryant University, and he is also a musician and author. His latest book is titled Screen Love, Queer Intimacies in the Grinder Era. In work, play, education, and even healthcare. We are using social media during COVID-19 to approximate normal life before the pandemic. In Screen Love, Tom urges us to do the opposite. Rather than highlight the ways that social media might help reproduce the pre-pandemic status quo, he explores how Grindr and other dating hookup apps can help us envision a radically new normal. We start our discussion with Tom reading from Screen Love.
1: Since COVID-19 has forced many of us, typically the most privileged among us, to work and socialize from home, screen-mediated intimacies have taken on a new significance. We connect with work colleagues over platforms like Zoom to maintain some semblance of business as usual. We gather with friends in virtual grids to share socially distanced drinks during quarantine happy hour. We teach and learn from home through screens, hoping that some iota of knowledge sticks, despite various domestic distractions. We teleconference with doctors to avoid infecting others and being infected. In work, play, education, and healthcare, among other places, we're using social media during the pandemic to approximate normal life before the pandemic. I assert that we should do the opposite. Rather than highlight the ways that social media can help us reproduce the pre-pandemic status quo, I explore how screen-mediated connection can help us envision a radically new normal specifically anti-normative conceptions of selfhood and community. But how can social media help us envision an alternative? Specifically, how can something like Grindr, the self-proclaimed, self-proclaimed largest social networking app for gay, bi, trans, and queer people prompt us to reconsider who we are and how we relate to others? These questions and all of their naive optimism animate this study.
0: Can we start by you just providing me a brief overview of, or providing the audience a brief overview of your book.
1: Sure. Um, I essentially wrote this book because, well, for a number of reasons, but the, but the thing that initially motivated me was just being a part of the gay male community and specifically living in Provincetown and also as an academic, being a queer theorist, hearing so much um, negativity and sort of techno-pessimism around the apps Um, on the one hand, like everyone was on them On the other hand, everyone had a critique of them as if they're like the worst thing is in the world or they're ruining the bar scene or, um, it's ruining, you know, sex in general, because now it's just so transactional and all of that. So that was the initial motivation was like, well, what can we like, if there's such a paradox between people critiquing it and then being on them so much for starters. And I was like, well, that's a little bit hypocritical. And I was trying to think about like, what can we glean from this experience? Like, what can we learn from it? What can we do with it? How can we find like new avenues of creative cooperation and new avenues of intimacy through these apps? And that's
0: where it started. Did you ha- hear similar comments before it was apps, but when it was websites, specifically Manhunt? Yeah. Definitely. And that's where I I think at one point in the book, I do reference that like, you know,
1: even since Manhunt, there was an article even in The Advocate probably in the early nineties, which was called like Manhunt is killing gay culture. Um, And it was specifically about, you know, how, you know, the gay male cultural infrastructure is so fragile to begin with and so precarious. In other words, bars close all the time. There's so many fewer bars now. And this article was basically like, and Manhunt's gonna be the final nail on the coffin. Digital culture has been so important to gay male identity and gay male sex Um, since the BBS, since the chat rooms, since AOL, you know, all of that has really contributed to the life of um, gay sex culture, as far as I'm concerned. And it's not necessarily as if there was this massive break between, you know, pre internet and post internet. Um, gay life. It's just sort of like these various communicative innovations um, that the queer community came up with. And I, and I look at this as sort of like in that line, sort of a continuity between earlier ones and, you know, crew, public cruising, various codes, hanky codes, et cetera. Um, and, you know, these sites of meeting and
0: connection. So what is different about Grindr? Because I remember the first time I discovered Grindr, was in 2009, I was in P-Town, I was at the Shipwreck Lounge, and my friend Kevin Walsh slash Trampolina, who's also was a guest on this podcast, told me about Grinder. and I think I probably must have downloaded it right there, and I thought it was the greatest invention ever, because I thought it, not, not about hooking up, I thought it was extremely clever, in a way that you could actually see people, how far away they were. Because I know, you know, younger people listening to this, that's not a new idea. That was groundbreaking to be able to see your your phone and see how close people were. And one other comment about that, you know, in Provincetown, um, you know, Provincetown is fifty miles away from Boston, like on grinder. You know, it obviously takes longer to drive there, but, you know, the direct route. So if someone is in Boston, they're not going to show up on your Grindr home screen. So when Grindr first came out in 2009, we would, me and my friends would all use it as a way to find out when people were in town because we would, I guess, favorite, or I don't know what you do. You did something. And when your friends showed up, they would show up as being two miles away, and then we would know, and then you would start conversing on Grindr. So I, me and my friends were all using it as a way to connect with each other, and it had nothing to do with hooking up and meeting new people.
1: Yeah. I mean, the, the app itself has been used in so many interesting and innovative ways, like um, Syrian refugees have used Grindr to help each other Um, find housing, find jobs and sort of navigate the bureaucracy of asylum seeking in foreign lands, because it is so useful. It's just just a communicative technology, right? Um, And also, I mean, it's been used in so many different ways to Yeah, to a out certain people, (laughs) Uh, you know, like hypocritical politicians who vote against gay rights measures, and then next thing you know, you see them on the grid, and they're like, you know, advertising themselves for X, Y, or Z fetish. Um, And so, I mean, some ways it's been used in some very subversive ways. In some ways, it's been used in very practical ways. And I think the initial question was how things have, or how is it different, right? Um, How is it different from these pre-internet? Um, sites of meeting and connection. It's it's profoundly different, right? I mean, there's no, as much as I advocate or at least sort of try to find what can we learn this new technology and what can we do with this new technology? I mean, my book, I was trained as a philosopher, my book is it's about ethics in the end. Like what ethical opportunities might we glean through these virtual cruising experiences? That's the, that's the real question of the book. Um, that being said, you know, I'm still so old school and analog in the sense that like there really is no um, substitute for those in-person experiences. I just did a book launch and someone asked me like, but what about record stores and what about gay bars? and what about like spaces you can go to, you know, like, Browse and like cruise, and and I'm like absolutely. But guess what? Like this is the world we live in, where those spaces are increasingly um, disappearing, and they're increasingly threatened. Any sort of public space is being privatized. Gay bars, like I said, are just you know increasingly blah blah blah. Anyway, just to finish or to complete that question, or to answer that question, the differences are profound, and the one thing that Grindr affords us. That real life cruising and bathhouses and sex clubs don't afford is that experience of seeing yourself on the grid as this one, um, just one of many little blocks of, uh, you know, pixels. And that experience of of feel this the the main concept in the book is is feeling fungible, feeling as if you're just, you know, one replaceable, interchangeable piece of a larger collection, like an artistic piece of a larger collection. And one of the comparisons I make, it's like it's like being in Andy Warhol's soup cans. <laughs> you feel like totally objectified. You feel like your humanity is completely emptied out of you. And there's something truly
0: liberating about that. Yeah, so and I think- oh- In what? <laughs> And awful at the yeah, same time. I'm I guess sort
1: of like walk that fine line between like dehumanization and objectification as like this awful thing. And on the other hand, as an opportunity to think of ourselves and others differently.
0: Yeah, I, I, I guess coming from my personal experience, um, I, I, being on the apps, it can definitely have good and bad. But I feel like the experience of how I feel about myself is the same as when I would feel in other ways of connecting with other gay people. When I go to gay bars, sometimes it feels good. Sometimes it feels bad. When I go to a cruisy area, sometimes it would feel great. Sometimes I would feel like a piece of crap. When I go to a bathhouse, I feel like the feelings are all the same. I think that what's different for me is it's, a much more rapid experience. Like it's a high volume, rapid turnover type of thing. So, Mm -hmm. so I, but I don't, I don't necessarily feel like the intensity or the nature of the feelings are the same. I just feel like you're getting them quicker. Sure.
1: But I mean, and you know, again, it is all going to be super subjective, right? I mean, everyone's experience. I'm just talking about these protocols. Like every app has a certain protocol that you have to sort of abide by, and you know, on Facebook the protocols are, um, you know, you use the like button if you like something, or you sh- hit the share button if you want to share button sh- share things. Right? These are just the technological protocols that you have to sort of master or you know at least understand in order to use the app. And one of my arguments is that the protocol of Grinder is that you essentially um turn yourself into a an aesthetic object for others to view whether you want them to view you or not. I mean you're putting yourself out there in this way which is and and to become a part of this sort of collection of aesthetic avatars of avatar objects that will shift around that will be different every time you get on um and that will change according to your location right like you were saying using location technology to sort of see your friends like, oh, hey, look who's in town. I see him on the grid. Right. Um, but I think that, that experience of of sort of aestheticizing the self. I know that sounds really academic, but turning the self into um, an art object that's that can, that's going to be viewed and your whole personhood is judged by that picture. Right. That's what you are to other viewers, by and large, until they click on it. And if they click on it, they might learn a little bit more about you. But in a flash, they're gonna see that picture and they're either gonna click on it or they're not gonna click on it. So it's so ridiculously, it's so much like self-branding and so much like, yes, you are becoming an utter commodity um, just as you're shopping through Amazon. We can't, I mean, you can't distant or it's impossible to distinguish sometimes the experience of internet shopping from being on Grindr. And I'm trying to get at, okay, what is what can that experience, what can we do with that? Like what new forms of community and new forms of new understandings of selfhood might we again glean from that experience? And again, I'm a queer theorist in general. So what we try to do, I would say, um, is sort of conceive of anti non or anti-normative understandings of connection and relationships and new forms of living and new forms of loving and sort of embracing all of the communicative innovations of the queer community throughout history, all the ways in which all of the aspects of um, gay life that has been sort of poo-pooed by straight society are exactly the things I try to embrace.
0: So were you thinking that we could evolve these apps into something different, or that we could use the experience, this unique 2021 experience, all of the data that we're getting to learn something, or what would you wanna do with it, with this information?
1: I, mean, I think, again, I think of it as an ethical opportunity. Like, if the, if this technology can afford us new ways of understanding ourselves, new ways of connecting with other people, and new ways of thinking about community, then that's huge, right? I don't know where it might go. All I'm trying to do is just to point out the fact that, um, this is an opportunity that if we were to think about this in such a way, it might open us to new ways, again, new ways of living, new ways of loving, new ways of communing, new ways of connecting, new understandings of selfhood, et cetera.
0: Let me throw something out there. And, um, Maybe this, this relates. This is something that I thought of. Um, you know, I'm doing Zoom calls with my family now. We've never done Zoom calls. Um, I'm doing Zoom dinners with my family, with my friends. That wasn't something that I never did until COVID. What I was thinking is what if the new norm based on learning and everyone becoming accustomed to doing Zoom dinners, that when you create a dining room, you automatically have the wall is a screen. So you can actually have dinners with people remotely. And it's like a standard thing, like a microwave. So everybody has it. And I was thinking that would be a great learning from this. You know, once COVID is all done, you know, in the future, that's just how a dining room is set up. You have you know, three sides of the dining, the dining table are for chairs. And one side is a giant screen and it's a standard size. You know, there's like standards for, you know, that's built into the software, depending on which dining room table size, etc.
1: Is so, that what you're talking about? No, I'm not at all talking about that. Um, that's way too practical for me because I'm a dreamer in this regard. I'm saying, what if we thought of ourselves what kind of communities would develop if we thought of ourselves, we de-emphasized our individualism, we de-emphasized um, our uniqueness and thought of ourselves as interchangeable. What kind of community might develop from that? That's a radical question. And, and part of some of the analogies I use are like Star Trek, the Borg. I use um, historical examples of these lesbian separatist groups who uh, this one called the Van Dykes, who all took the same name, the same last name. They changed their names to Van Dyke. They literally treated each other as like interchangeable sex partners um, and drove around the country in vans. That's why they were the Van Dykes, which is the great clever punny name. Um, And essentially tried to recreate a whole new way of living that was free of men. They lived independent of men. They lived um, off the land, and they tried to create a whole new social system. I think we are at such a desperate moment in the history of humanity that we need to start thinking radically about new forms of community and new forms of society. That's why I wrote the book, because it's not just about like, let's put some, I mean, I'm all for that idea. I think it's a super idea to to have, you know, your Zoom friends come over for dinner, but I'm thinking like, uh uh-uh, big stuff, like new, forms of society, new ways of thinking of ourselves so that we can create new visions and new articulations of community that might get us through the mess that we've created thus far. You know what I mean? That might help us adapt to the new reality of climate change, super viruses, um, various things. So you see what I mean? That's why it's a philosophical, I, always, I call it sort of a philosophical experiment. Okay. And I'm just using Grindr as just sort of like, the book is about Grindr and it has nothing to do with Grindr. Through Grindr, I'm trying to articulate and envision new forms of community. And I was like, what if we use Grinder as a template for like actual social systems? Do you know what I mean? Like, I think that would, I think that's just an interesting question to ask. And I thought it was interesting to sort of follow it through to the end point. And that's where the academic stuff comes in. Do you know what I mean? Like, I can't help but, when I ask a big question about like what would a new what would a form what would a new form of society look like based on the grinder grid, I have to go to like academic sources because to me they're the most valuable. You know they're the ones that are they these are the folks that have thought through it the most and are trying to um, really work on these questions. But it is a you know it's it's about abstracting from the grinder experience to
0: another one. This book, as you mentioned, is very academic, and I was wondering, would you consider this a creative exercise creating this book?
1: Yeah, in a lot of ways, you know, I think like an artist, I, let me take that back, I don't know if I think like an artist, but many artists do begin their projects with questions, right? At one point in, in the book, I quote uh, Collier Shore, who is a photographer, a trans photographer that I really, I don't know if she identifies as trans actually. I know she, I know they identify as um, Butch, but Collier Shore is a great photographer. And the question they ask is, um, to begin a whole project, a whole series, they asked, what would it be like if we, if we imagined ourselves as the other? Like, in other words, like if we were interchangeable. So a question like that, that motivated their photographic series That is a similar question that motivated this book. So I think because it comes out in sort of academic, in academic form, the creativity for me comes from, it's like a thought exercise. I'm actually beginning with a question and a concept that I want to see through to the end. um, And along the way, try to do it in in a creative way. And if you notice in the book, the reason I say this is much less academic than my previous work is because I actually do tell some stories. Mm-hmm. And in academia, that's like poo-pooed upon, right? Uh-huh. You're not supposed to talk about your classes. You're not supposed to talk about your sister being in the ICU. You're not supposed to talk about um, you know, various experiences in your life. You're supposed to be objective and you know, super smart and all this stuff. And I try to be both, but I found it, um, I had a ball writing this book because it was just such a fun thought experiment to think Think to think through that that initial question. Um, what what forms of society, what forms of community, might we develop? Might actualize? Might we actualize,
0: based on the grinder grid? Do you think that this thought in this book, these thoughts in this book, would have happened if you hadn't spent so much time or lived in Provincetown?
1: Very good question. I mean, one of the things I did love about the apps in Provincetown, it was um, that before I even meet someone in real life, I would know exactly what they wanted sexually. I would know exactly, I could know what they looked like naked half the time. And there was something so funny and fascinating about meeting someone. It was almost like the old secret handshake or something, or like, I I know a lot about you and I'm just meeting you for the first time. Like there was a weird wink, wink, nod, nod moment Um, living in Provincetown, which is sort of a bastion of gay male, um, you know, fairly, more than fairly, very rich very white, mostly gay men. Um, And just the ways in which the apps really blurred the boundaries between public and private was fascinating to me too. Um, The fact that I, again, I can meet someone in real life and know a lot about them in terms of at least what their tastes were and how they present themselves on these apps. And that was one aspect of it. Um, And the other aspect was just in general, the fact that gay life is so much more mainstream now, and um, the fact that gays, gay gays and lesbians um, are in the spotlight a lot these days—you know, very high visibility, public visibility of gay and lesbian folks and issues—I um, was looking at the apps as like this is sort of a, in an interesting way, this is sort of a an escape hatch from all of that visibility. It's an escape hatch from all the pressure of having to be like representative of your community and like an upstanding citizen and like, you know, a respect, a respectable person. When in the end, like gay, you know, being gay is about who you want to have sex with. And so at least Grindr offered that outlet in the age of invisibility visibility and sort of like respectability. Here we have, um, you know, the byproduct is grinder.
0: But would would you have had that same observa- set of observations if you were just in Providence, Rhode Island? I don't know. Not-
1: I, I, it's a good question, and I, I, it's hard to answer because it, it's hard to sort of say, you know, what if I'd never found Provincetown? I think I would have. I, I would have been interested in this issue because I've been writing about gay stuff since. That's my whole thing. You know, what I mean, like I've been writing about uh, my dissertation, which I finished in 2006, but began in 1999, was specifically about gay male friendships. Yeah. So that's um, that was my first book too, friendship as a way of life and specifically looking at sort of the new forms of friendship and these interesting um, configurations of friendship in the gay male community. And specifically during the AIDS crisis that, that sort of emerged and saved a lot of people's lives and enriched a lot of people's lives. Yeah. So I do think I would be writing about queer stuff. I don't know if I would have been writing. Um, I mean, I, to be perfectly honest, I didn't even get an iPhone. I was such a late, I'm always a late bloomer. I'm always a late comer to everything. I didn't even get my first iPhone until 2012, 2011. And so once I did, I was like, I I got on the apps and I was like, oh, this is, like you said, like, this is, this is very different from, let's say, Bear WWW or Manhunt or various other um, internet experiences that I had. Number one, like you said, the high volume and just like the, like, I'm coming over now kind of thing. And I'm just sort of like, whoa, 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 whoa. It just felt like everything was moving very fast. And it was a very different, um, very different experience than being on the internet. Yep. it was much more transactional and much quicker. So as if I would have written this book if I hadn't lived in Provincetown, maybe not. But Provincetown wasn't necessarily being in the life in Provincetown certainly informs what I think about theoretically and what I think about academically, no doubt about it.
0: Yeah. and I think one of the reasons why I was asking is I grew up in Boston and I spent a lot of time in Provincetown and you know one of the th- the couple things that you mentioned that makes. Provincetown unique. Obviously, it's very gay. It's very white male, and it's very wealthy white mm. male. And really, Boston is too. The, you know, the gay community in Boston. And I didn't even realize that because, well, I I made a really a good salary when I lived there, um, and most of my friends were. I kind of didn't realize that that was a bit of an aberration until I moved to Chicago. And I moved to Chicago as an artist and I started to realize that P-Town really is a unique set of gays.
1: Yes, for better and for worse. (laughs) I mean, in that regard, and I do think the New England bubble is really dangerous and can be fairly toxic and um, and just one thing I did, actually, right when I got my first iPhone uh, and I was on sabbatical because I had just finished my previous book, I went south and I met a bunch of people in Provincetown from all over the country, many of whom lived in Texas, Florida. Um, I went to New Orleans and I just decided, like, I've had this sort of weird fear of the south or this sort of distrust of going south. And I need to get over that, number one. And now through Provincetown, I have all these great people to go visit in the south. So I just sort of made a little itinerary where I visited a few folks and ended up in Houston and up in New Orleans and ended up in Fort Lauderdale. And I was so, it was so refreshing to be in gay culture, gay male culture in the south. I found it like so much more racially integrated, um, so much less m- about class and money. It just felt a, a, a lot better to me, um, a more, I don't know, a more open and inclusive, I guess, are the words. Um, whereas Provincetown can be so class-based and so race-based and so gross in a lot of ways. Um, and just getting out of it is a good thing,
0: <laughs> for yeah. sure. I mean, I definitely had good experiences there, yeah. but I would say that my, you know, having these, living in Chicago for three years, has definitely made me view Boston and really well, Boston and Provincetown in a new way. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, you know, as I'm growing older, the, the things about Provincetown I love the most have much less to do with the gay stuff and much more to do with the dunes and the, the woods and the ponds and like just the landscape in general. It's such a unique geographical location. And there's so much to do in that, in that part of, you know what I mean? So when I go now, it's, that's all I really, I love having access to the bars and the people and the throngs and all of that. But I also really am an introvert in the end. And I'd like, oh, people would people would scoff at me saying that, but I really, I retreat from that more and more as I get older. Let's put it that way.
0: Okay. It doesn't thrill me as much. As it relates to your book, so what is next? What what when you write a book, what what happens next?
1: Yeah, uh, well, one thing I'm going to do is not write a book for a while because <laughs> it is a process, and it, it this one did take. I I started it in 2015. I was commissioned by a journal um, that's called Key which is a hu- journal in the humanities, and it's a theory journal, really. Um, so in other words, cultural theory, critical theory, social theory, people trying to, again, envision new forms of community and new forms of society and this kind of thing. So they just asked me to write something. And I thought, I've always wanted, I've been wanting to write about apps and just sort of thinking through the apps and what kinds of, again, what, what new forms of community might we glean and see and vision through these apps. So I did that in 2015 and that went pretty well. And then I was like, Oh, I want to write a book about this. And I just, that's how, that's how I started this one. So I need to have some sort of, I don't have any ideas for the next book right now to be perfectly honest. Like I said, my, my training is in philosophy um, and uh, critical theory. So what I've done with that training is, is um, put it to use in queer theory and writing about queer issues. So it'll be something to do with that. I just haven't, I haven't, you know, I'm right now, like I said, I'm just promoting this book and it just came out. So I'm just sort of doing a little bit of a victory lap. But one thing I am going to do is focus on music um, and focus on other aspects of my creative life that, that are really important to me. I mean, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be an academic if I couldn't be a musician also, like I can't do, I can't just have that be my life. And a lot of people can, and that's great, but I, music, um, has been such a huge part of my life that I'm really actually tonight, I'm going to mix the new record we just recorded in January. Um, so yeah, like that, that part, that, that part of my life and that part of my personhood is going to be given a lot of attention.
0: Great. Is the music an extension of your academic life or is it like the counterbalance?
1: I think they play off of each other, honestly, because for instance, this project I'm doing now, um, which is called Le Feeling, which is based in Providence, um, I studied a lot of queer avant-garde films when I was in grad school, just to sort of learn about the history of queer culture and try to understand, yeah, the roots of um, the gay culture that we have today. And so many of these early queer avant-garde films are so amazing. And at any chance, I like want to show people some of these things because, you know, just what people were doing in the 50s and the 60s and even earlier, um, I just find fascinating. So this musical project is that we create live soundtracks to some of these queer avant-garde films, most most of which have been censored. So for instance, like Jean Genet, the writer, the French writer made one film, um, called A Song of Love and Chant d'Amour. Um, and it's an amazing silent film. And that was our first project. Like, okay, this is a 26-minute film. Let's make a soundtrack to it and then project the film and 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 create the music live before an audience. And that's what we've done. Of course, you know, if I, I shouldn't even know if I should be talking about this because I'll probably get sued for copyright or X, Y, or Z because we don't necessarily get permission from the Genet Foundation to do this. But um, yeah, that's been a really, so you see how many, what I mean though? I'll answer your question. My academic life, if I hadn't seen those films in graduate school, if I hadn't been invested in studying as an academic queer culture and queer theory, I would never have access to those films. I, they might have just passed me by completely. But now that, but once I do, now that I do have access to those films, I want to sort of merge them into my um, music life as well, and that's been a real, a nice sort of um, melding, or at least a wedding of my two
0: selves, let's say. And when is the output of that mixing that you're doing tonight? When is that going to be available to world? I don't know.
1: We have the record out by this summer. Um, we have a record out now uh, that we recorded in. 20 I think it came out in 2019 I think that sounds about right yeah maybe even 2020 got a time right the pandemic and time and everything slips away Um, so we do we have one full LP out now we have a bunch of little EPs out we played some amazing shows with bands like um, Juju Um, who else has La Feeling played with some great local bands it's just such a fun project and it's such a it's so like heartening and um to me like it just keeps me going in the best of ways um because academic stuff is harder you know academic stuff it's like you i really have to put on my thinking cap and and really focus and hunker down and if i want to write a book it's gonna it's gonna be a real i love that too i love that whole process as well um And like I said, I try to find as much creativity and sort of express myself creatively as much as I can in that context. Um, But the musical context, I feel a little freer to um, do that. Uh, I started playing music in high school. I never took any lessons or anything. Um, I was a skater who listened to punk rock, and I just wanted to like, I figured I can just learn these things. So once you like learn a couple of bar chords, you can pretty much play a number of punk rock songs. So uh, my brother, who's a year and a half younger than I am, and my best friend, we would just learn songs and then, you know, uh,
0: we wouldn't, I
1: guess we would record them with the boom box or whatever. Anyway, so that was the beginning, and you were
0: playing guitar.
1: I was playing guitar at that time, and then we started a band um, in 1989, I believe, 1990, and we went to uh, 1993. But I got to tour the country. Um, it was amazing. It was the total DIY punk rock scene. So I booked the tour myself. We had some help from friends here and there, but you know, all the way from Connecticut to. Seattle, like crisscrossing all around the entire country.
0: Did you have groupies?
1: Um, No, God, no, no. We were just lucky to have shows is what we were, what we had. Um, And, you know, sleeping on floors. It was the real DIY sort of punk life. Um, And that was the beginning. And then I went to, I was in college at the time. And I met a guy in college named Craig Finn, And we just hit it off instantly musically. We had all these mutual friends and we didn't even know each other. Like, you need to know Craig Finn. You need to know Craig Finn. I had so many people tell me that. So I was like, I better meet this guy. And we did have a lot in common musically and we started a band in college. And then after college, he moved back to Minneapolis which is where he was from and said, hey, move out here and play in my band. And I just started a job and I was like, "Ah, I can't do that. But I eventually did within a year. I was like, yes, this guy's super talented. I really want to play in this band. And cause he had sent me a few songs. And so I did, I moved to Minneapolis, um, and started playing in lifter puller in 1996. And we did well, and we did well in the afterlife of lifter puller than we did actually in the existence of lifter puller. That band went for about four years. I had to leave after four years because I was basically failing out of grad school. Um, so All of a sudden, I mean, I'm still, I just got an email the other night from some fan boy who was like, I want to hear your take on this particular lyric in this particular song from 1998. And I was like, "Uh, okay, Uh, do you think, I mean, that's a long time ago for me.
0: Did you give it to him? That was the,
1: oh yeah. Um, That was the band that kind of, um, that was the closest to like, oh, we're actually doing, we're actually doing well. And if we sort of stick this out, we might actually go somewhere. And as it turns out, Craig Finn um, started a band after that called The Hold Steady and The Hold Steady did quite well. I mean, I think opening for Bruce Springsteen and The Rolling Stones is, we can say that that's quite well for a rock band. <laughs> I have two projects now. One is Le Feeling, which is um, we make live soundtracks to queer avant-garde films. And the music is, is sort of avant-garde-y. the music is sort of avant-garde, the music is sort of soundscape Think of a soundtrack to a film um, where we're doing, you know there's no vocals, we're doing sort of background, um, really trying to play off of the films themselves. But when we record the records, we can actually turn them into more musical compositions. Um, but they begin with like looking at the films and thinking like, how would we score this? Yeah, so we're on Spotify, we're on um, Apple Music, we're on all of the major streaming platforms. Um, but also my bandmate in La Feeling is Dan Boucher and Dan Boucher runs a record label called Wrong Hole Archival Bureau and it's W-H-O-L-E, not for all of you gutter minded folks out there. Um, and yeah, so the, we are on a label that the, you know Dan runs this label and puts out a whole bunch of stuff, um, but we're just on a record label too. So that's how it gets out there. But it's still, you know, a fairly DIY project. The other project, um, I was lucky enough in 2016 to be asked to play in a band with the photographer Wolfgang Tillmans, the Berlin-based photographer. Um, and actually, the book is really, to me, like a celebration. <laughs> uh, or it there's more. I'm celebrating more than just the book with the book because the cover of the book is, in fact. Um, a piece of art by my friend, Juan Pablo Echeverri. And I met him in Provincetown at the Fine Arts Work Center. He was giving an artist talk. And um, he had dated a former student of mine. And my student said, you have to go see Juan Pablo when he speaks. And I said, sure, I'll go. It's right next door to my house. Why not? And I've loved his work. And I was working on the book at that time. And I saw this one series, which is now on the cover of the book, and and. I said, I want to talk about your art in, in my book. Um, And he was like, wow, amazing. That's so great. And I said, yeah, come have drinks with me and my friends. We're going to have dinner and drinks. And we got talking at dinner and we talked only about music, which I love. I love, I love like, I, I really don't like talking about academic stuff with academics. I don't like to talk about art with artists. I like to talk about something we have in common besides what we actually are we actually know so we just talked about music all night and he said do you know the photographer Wolfgang Tillman's and I said yes of course he's like one of these like a hero um, and he said hold on and then he says um, come you know come try out to be in Wolfgang Tillman's band um, in a couple weeks I said okay so I did that. I rode my motorcycle to Fire Island from Provincetown, which was a colossal pain in the ass and required two ferries. And I auditioned and I got the part. And since 2016 um, I've been playing bass guitar for Wolfgang Tillman's band, which is called Fragile. Um, Wolfgang does a lot of different types of music these days, but Fragile was sort of his live band that he got together. And we got to play shows at some amazing places like uh, Berghain in Berlin, um, at the Tate Modern in London, uh, Fire Island, the Fire Island Arts Festival uh, in Brooklyn at a place called Union Pool. I mean, just, it's been a total, unexpected and incredibly serendipitous turn of events and i do credit p-town for that because if you i'm involved in the the art scene in p-town or at least i try to go to the artist talks and really try to engage with like all of the amazing stuff that's coming through p-town um and just keeping yourself open to meeting people and sort of just you know i don't know just like putting yourself out there in some ways like even just going to artist talks and i would never be in this band if I hadn't gone to that artist talk and just just said, hey, I think your work's amazing,
0: you know? Well, good. Tom, thank you so much for talking to me. Now, if people want to purchase your book, where do they do that? And the name of the book is Green Love, Queer Intimacies in the Grinder Era. And what is the website that people would go to? Uh, just Sunypress.edu. So it's S-U-N-Y-P-R-E-S-S yeah. dot yeah. yeah, that would
1: be. And then from there, just look up Screen Love. Of course, it's available through like Google Play and Kindle. And the paperback, which will be much more affordable, comes out in July.
0: All yeah. right. And then for your music, if people want to check out your music, where should they go?
1: Yeah. Um, The music, La Feeling, is on all the major streaming platforms. Um, Or one can go to Bandcamp specifically and um, look for Wrong Hole Archival Bureau. And I highly recommend the label, because there's some really amazing artists on that label. We are so lucky um, to be in that community and um, accompanied by so many amazing artists. So that would be Bandcamp, Wrong Hole, Archival Bureau. And that band is called La Feeling. You can just type in La Feeling and onto Spotify or Apple Music or what have you, and you'll find it there as well. As far as uh, Wolfgang Tillman's Fragile, um, if you type in the uh, same thing, all major streaming platforms, Those um, the one record that I'm on is called That's Desire. Um, and that's the opening track of the record. And that was a I'm. I was so proud of that because it's a very bass-heavy track, and I'm playing bass in that band. Um So Wolfgang Tillman's Fragile is the name of the band, and the um, that record is called That's Desire.
0: Okay, great. My name is Ricky McGuckran, and you have been listening to Eager to Know the podcast. If you haven't already, please go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Eager to Know podcast.